Hey everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast for a current philosophy major, that's me, and his former high school philosophy teacher, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode 21, where we discuss a classic of Eastern philosophy, the Tao Te Ching. But before we do that, Mr. Parsons, how have you been? I've been good. We've uh, so I'll do the weather update this this week. Uh, we've just gone through what I call our second false fall uh, of the year. <laughs> this is a Houston thing. I'm sure it happens other places, but uh, it got cool for a day or two, and then we're back up in like highs in the upper 80s. So, but that's okay. The evenings are still cool, and that's very nice. And we have a front coming through. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I'm using meteorology lingo here. We have a front coming through, probably a, a high pressure, I don't know, And uh, on Wednesday, and it's going to drop our temps again. We've got lows in the 40s and 50s coming up. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, yeah. So just in time for some, some good autumn-type weather. But yeah, other than that, everything is good. found out my mom is going to be able to come down for Thanksgiving, and it has been many years since she's been down. So we're very That's excited great. about that. So anyway. That's uh, what's going on in my life. We're we're still we're still hanging out in the transcendentalism uh, in my in my class right now. So, <laughs> oh, actually, going for a hike next week in the Sam Houston National Forest. I might have mentioned that before. I don't know. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna try to get some direct experience with nature as the transcendentalists advocate for. So that'll be something new and, and different. So that's gonna be fun. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm I'm wondering where is my field trip for philosophy class uh, two <laughs> well, years ago. You, you can bet the the year one students are kind of grum, grumbling about that. Uh, they're, they're like, oh, where's our only field your trip? Year two? It's your year two. Yeah, students. Oh, yeah, it's just okay. year two. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that makes sense. That's exciting. So I guess I'm grumbling about the the lack of a field trip, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. I'm uh, rather I'm doing quite well. I think that's the correct term. Nothing much has happened over the past few weeks. We're moving from political philosophy to metaphysics slash philosophy of religion in the class that I'm TAing. So I'm excited for that because I know little about political philosophy, but have delved into some Aquinas and that's where we're starting. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm, oh, I forgot. I have two big, big agenda items. Um, First off, I have to say happy birthday to my friend Carrington. We go back to high school together. Mr. Parson knows knows him, so I, I, <laughs> right. I figured it would be a good time to bring up happy birthday. Um, I guess this will air later, so it won't be his birthday. But um, I I found out this week that I I'm receiving a fellowship from Rice for the summer. So I guess it's going to be a whole year thing, but they're going to be over the summer. I'm going to be writing and reading for some philosophical topic that I haven't thought about yet. So looking forward to that. Um, I'm getting a small grant, as I think um, humanities people are probably aware, but it's enough. It, it's enough to survive. So that's very great. Very exciting. <laughs> well, I think that's really exciting. And I think it speaks to how your professors view you and, uh, and, and to your no, you you think no? <laughs> well, take the compliment anyway. No, I, I it's really exciting. <laughs> it's a it's a good time. I'm 
I'm really excited for it. So it'll be great. Okay. So what you're saying, like, it was just random. <laughs> they picked the name know. out of the hat. They probably, they probably did. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have no clue how it happened, but I'm excited to, I think I'm going to try to do some new kind of philosophy. I'm not, I'm not tired of ancient philosophy, but I want to explore something new. So I guess over the next few months while we're, while we're recording, we can, uh, it can be a kind of uh, introduction both for our audience and for me for for some new topics. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. You've definitely done plenty of, of classics. Yeah, for <laughs> classic, sure. Classic <laughs> philosophy. All right. Well, uh, sorry to uh, burden you with further classic philosophy, but uh, <laughs> at least this time it's going to be Eastern philosophy instead of the Western right. stuff that you've been reading. So, so let's move on over to the main topic. All right, everyone. Thanks for showing up to class today. We're uh, we're going to be talking about the Tao Te Ching, which is a classic of Chinese philosophy. So this is the first time on this program that we have focused on any sort of philosophy that's outside of really the traditional Western canon. So I'm excited to bring this work to all of you today. It's something that I teach in class in depth, part of the curriculum that I teach. Uh, requires that we choose a book from a prescribed list of 12 books and uh, philosophy books and read that book cover to cover. And so I was not very familiar with Chinese philosophy and only knew it in a superficial way. And so I wanted to know Ch uh, some Chinese philosophy at a deeper level. So so I chose it for my students, but I also chose the book for me <laughs> so that I could, I could learn a bit more about uh, Eastern philosophy. So I guess before we get into to all of that, uh, Andrew, like, what are your what are your sort of impressions about Eastern philosophy versus Western? It's also a topic that I'm not not uh, not as familiar with. I think, to be honest with you, the only time that I ever studied Eastern Eastern philosophy was when I was taking your class. So, but my impressions, I think, are I think it's a lot more. It seems like it's a lot more in, emphasized in nature than I think a lot of Western philosophy is i also think the i think the philosophical tradition is a lot less carved out in the sense that you know we've in the western tradition there's this um we've definitely mentioned it, it gets brought up in classes all the time but they say like all all philosophy is a footnote to to plato and so i think that that tradition is very obvious and very clear to be be traced back from writings from everything, you you can trace it back even to modern philosophers who who are working on totally different things. You can you can find some Plato in there, but I think for Chinese philosophy, at least this book, I I can't really comment on the wider scope, but I know for this book and in context with um, a little bit of Buddhism that I studied for one class, it's it's less carved in the sense that the tradition is passed on in a way that's not directly from one concrete teacher to a next it might be from a wide variety of sources that are kind of accumulated together and over time put in one volume and so i think in that way it seems to me that the philosophy is kind of a a culmination of a lot of different views that are all influencing each other in a way that western philosophy there's a lot more boundaries yeah i think that's a good a good way to to describe it when you think about philosophy as a discipline that seems very Western, actually. The idea of philosophy began in the West versus 
what we might call wisdom traditions. Mm. That's a term that some people use when they're describing works of, well, works of philosophy that aren't quite so analytical, maybe. Mm. Uh, you think about wisdom traditions that might exist in, well, just very generically the East, but then like maybe sub-Saharan Africa, indigenous tribes, tribal elders, and groups of that nature. Clearly, those groups have wisdom traditions, right? And I think in the Eastern tradition with the big ones, so talking about like legalism, Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, and Hinduism, and certainly there's plenty more, that e even those as established schools of thought, it still feels very different to me anyway than, than what has happened in the West in terms of philosophy as a, as a discipline. So I guess maybe less formalized, less abstract. I could be entirely wrong on that, but, but that's kind of my very uneducated view on the differences between Eastern and Western philosophy. I think another thing too to mention, you know, I think Eastern philosophy, kind of like Western philosophy too, but I think Eastern philosophy, there's a lot of influence that I know we were, we were going to talk about this, but I was just reminded of this, that there's this huge influence from religion too. So I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of Buddhism, which is, I, I did take a Buddhism class at school that was very broad, of course, but something that I do definitely remember about that was emphasized a lot was just mis how mysticism played such a big, big role in their philosophical tradition yeah, um, and their way of knowing the world. And that was just so integral in a way that Western philosophy definitely does have, at, at points it definitely does have a emphasis on God, but God in the sense of something abstract, um, not necessarily in the world and, and kind of influencing the world where Eastern philosophy and, and Buddhism, from what I remember, you know, there's these kind of spirits and beings who are all around and who are kind of ever changing the world. And so I think that's a difference as well. Yeah. So when it comes to religion and philosophy, yeah, certainly here in the West, we really kind of like to keep those two things separate of each other, unless we're talking about specifically the philosophy of religion, which is an entire branch mm. of philosophy that began oh, about 300 years ago or so as a, as a specific branch. Whereas over in the East, philosophy and religion are completely, like you said, intertwined. They are, there, there's no separation between those two things. Well, so in the West, I say for you reading the Bible, there might be some wisdom in there and some things in there that have to do with how you should live a good life. And even the middle books, the way that, that Christianity has put together the Old Testament, in the middle of there, uh, you know, you have some books that are called the wisdom books, like Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Job and some of those books. But we viewed that as scripture. And we're like, that's a, that's a thing that has to be treated differently than philosophy. Whereas over in the East, whether we're talking about the Tao Te Ching or the Vedas or any other religious texts, those are simultaneously seen as, as works of philosophy, but also scripture. And I think that's an interesting distinction. So I guess we should jump into the Tao Te Ching. So just kind of very broadly, what, what is it? Yeah, so the, so the Tao Te Ching was written by Lao Tzu, or at least he is the person who's credited as having written it. It was written roughly 2,500 years ago, 
So that would be 400 BC. And it's a book of 81 poems by Lao Tzu, or at least attributed, once again, at least attributed to him, that talks about a particular way of living. So if you're familiar with the term of Taoism, sometimes that's called a religion. Sometimes that's called a wisdom tradition. I actually looked it up and Googled it uh, today and, and Wikipedia uh, called it, you know, you always get that search result on the right side of the screen. Uh, Wikipedia identified it as a discipline, mm. uh, but certainly there are some followers who treat it religiously. So uh, either way, it's, it, in a way, it's very similar to, say, Confucianism, which is also a, a discipline. And uh, both Confucianism and Taoism developed at the same time. Uh, in, uh, supposedly, Lao Tzu and Confucius knew each other which is kind of an interesting point because they're very opposite of each other. And we'll talk about that. Uh, but anyway, this uh, Lao Tzu was very frustrated with, uh, with the Chinese bureaucracy at the time. And he was a government official. And he, there was a change of power. And he didn't like the direction that things were going. And he's just like, you know what? I'm peacing out. Like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go be a hermit. Uh, and he goes off to, goes off to the mountains. Uh, and leaves the his government job behind him, which, by the way, in that in that time period, a, a government position in the Chinese bureaucracy was you're you're living well. So he leaves all these things behind, and supposedly, right, we, we get all this you know apocryphal type stories. Supposedly, when he was leaving town, there was a guard, you know, at the city gate, and he's like, you know, I'm sorry, you can't leave. He's like, nope, I'm I'm, I'm out of here. He's like, wait a minute, are you the Lao Tzu? And he's like, yes, that's me. He's like, I will let you leave, but I, I cannot allow you to leave until you tell me your wisdom. <laughs> and supposedly this is how uh, the Tao Te Ching was written. But today, you know, the Tao Te Ching that we have is a, is a small book of 81 poems. It's generally presented as poetry. Uh, I have seen some prose versions of it. And they're all usually like one page in length. So, so it's a small book, but it's a book chock full of Probably the types of wisdom that you might associate with stereotypically with the East, and I think that one thing that's that's pretty was pretty interesting to me when I I remember you teaching this was the the translation of Tao Te Ching. Is it I I could be wrong. I could be misremembering this, but is it the way of virtue? Is that, is that okay? Right? Yeah, yeah. So so translations. So two things. We'll talk about the title, and then we'll talk about translations. So as far as the what does what does Tao Te Ching mean? So T A O. It's pronounced Tao. You'll also see it spelled Taoism sometimes with a D. It's a translation thing. But usually when you see Tao Te Ching, it'll be all spelled with with a T. So the first word Tao is T A O in English script, and that means the way. That's all it means. The way. Day, which is spelled T E. Tao Te Ching, that word means virtue or translates roughly. It's one of those words that people say like is untranslatable, but you know, <laughs> virtue is the closest thing to it. And then the word Ching just simply means book. Mm. That's Chinese for book. So it, the, the title translated into English is the book uh, of the way to virtue. This is very much so a, a book about like we have spoken about with, say, like Stoicism, existentialism, those types of things. This is a philosophy of living. This is Lao Tzu's attempt to help us towards living a 
good life. So in, in that way, it, it meets the, the qualifications of a philosophy of living. There's a metaphysics behind it, involved in it, and, and then there's uh, definitely an ethic involved with it as well. But the other thing I'll say about uh, translations is, you know, I, I kind of went down a deep rabbit hole the first year I taught this <laughs> thing. Uh, I would walk into class with like five or six different translations every day. I remember <laughs> it was so funny. And it's so yeah, yeah, it's so easy to do because the book is so short, so they're generally fairly affordable, you know, because you know it's not some hulking three hundred page book, you know, <laughs> like the the one I have here, which includes an introduction and notes, is only one hundred nine pages. And so, according to the introduction of this one book that I that I use in class. The Tao Te Ching is the second most translated book in the world behind the Bible. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. So there's plenty of translations out there. And being poetry, how they are so succinct with their language, so precise with their language, changing a word here or there can really make a difference in the meaning of the poem. And uh, and so, you know, people really can really get into uh, to translations. And then I think something that I was just thinking about, too, is... The name Lao Tzu, I think the I asked I just uh, just checked to make sure, but Lao is like teacher or, or master, and I think I remember from my one day of Chinese, I remember learning that, and then Tzu I think is um, old. Is it? I I remember looking it up. I'm not doing some kind of translation, so I think that I the translation I found online is something like old teacher, old master. So I think that's that's kind of an interesting. I'm I'm just interested if that was like his nickname or if that's kind of someone looking back and and giving kind of credence on kind of some random figure and they're just giving that name to personify. But I think it's interesting. I think it's I think it's helpful to to think about. Yeah, that is interesting. I I haven't heard that, of it, but it makes total sense um, that you would kind of assume a name. He would hardly be the first spiritual leader that assumed a name after, you know, becoming right. a, a leader of, of some sort of new type of way of, of living. And it really was kind of like a new type of way of living. Like this is, whereas like Christianity was a sort of a reactionary movement against the, the Roman government, as well as like the direction that uh, Judaism was going at the time with the Sadducees and Pharisees and Zealots and all of that. You know, Jesus comes with a new message of loving one another and and caring for the poor and all that sort of stuff. It was it was a reaction movement to sort of the aristocratic and legalistic type of view that that religion was taking at the time. Very much so the same with the Tao Te Ching. Lao Tzu, I mean, I won't get like too heavy into to Chinese government, but it was enormous. And the term bureaucracy is always associated with with China from this particular time period and the dynasties. And Lao Tzu kind of giving all of that up and going out to live in nature out in the mountains was was definitely a, a counterculture type of of movement. So really, the Tao Te Ching was born in that. But you know, if you think about it, most religions are born in sort of a counterculture type of movement going against what is the status quo of the day. There's one thing I wanted to bring up that you mentioned. Let's see here. Ah, yes. So you're talking about how Lao Tzu, uh, the translation of his name means teacher. Confucius, again, like I said earlier, Confucius, who was the founder of the school of Confucianism, 
were contemporaries. And this quote, and I don't know how it's attributed to him, but it's it's a common quote that's talked about. Confucius apparently said when he met Lao Tzu, he said, today when I met Lao Tzu, it was like meeting a dragon. And I think that's a really interesting quote. So he must have been really impacted by the maybe the intensity or the or the power or just sort of his overall his overall just sort of demeanor. Uh, I just think it's a really interesting quote that that Confucius would would say that about him. Must have been such a striking meeting for two really influential people to have met, and and you know for for one to have come away from that with such high praise for the other. That must have been been a quite striking meeting. So if you're familiar with anything from Taoism, the, the one thing that you're probably familiar with is the yin-yang symbol. Uh, this is a pretty commonly used symbol in Western culture. People seem to like it. They like to make tattoos and, and shirts and, and whatever, because it is a, a representation of a very simple philosophical concept. And that's kind of the idea of like the, the unity of opposites, right? Where uh, and we, we we certainly know these things. We we make these illusions in the West, you know, with you can't have darkness without light, and or you can't have light without darkness, and you know all these types of all these types of opposites. The yin yang symbol seems to represent that rather well. And the yin yang symbol, I mean, it is it is associated with Taoism. Like again, if you Google Taoism, it will pop up on the screen under images. So it is like the Taoist symbol. However. Again, like going back to Confucianism, these two schools that were developed at the same time, if you wanted to like call one side one thing and one side the other, the inside, which is the dark side of the symbol, would represent Taoism, and the bright side or the white side would represent Confucianism, uh, which was a much more rigid way of living versus the I don't know. Students have called, uh, you know, was Lao Tzu a hippie? Um, you know, <laughs> so, you know, uh, the, the other side of, of the symbol, which is, uh, you know, you'd associate words with like darkness, softness, calm, peaceful, these types of words associated with where, whereas like on the, on the white side of the yin yang symbol, you know, you would associate things like uh, light, activity, so, so they're opposites of each other. So when we talk about the Tao Te Ching and the content of the Tao Te Ching, it's very much so nested in the dark side of the yin-yang symbol. And again, we'll talk about these motifs that run throughout the book here in a minute, and you'll see why that is, that, that is the case. But again, another thing to point out about the yin-yang symbol is that in each, on each side, there's a small dot of the opposite color that is incorporated into it. And so it's a way to acknowledge that even in darkness, there is this small bit of light. So again, if you're familiar with anything from Taoism, it's going to be that symbol. Andrew, have, have, you, have you ever, no, do you ever notice that symbol uh, now that, now that you've studied it a couple of years ago? All the, all the time, all the time when, when <laughs> it's so, so funny to see people have, especially in college too, it's just like, you'll see like people have yin and yang tattoos or yin and yang um i forget what they're called i think they're called tapestries or stuff and i'm just like okay this is this is just crazy but uh oh, like a big thing that hangs on the wall or whatever right right yeah so so it's just like well you know what can you do yeah that, i've definitely noticed it a lot more and 
I remember thinking, I think you made us write about this in class once or twice. So <laughs> I, I remember it, uh, it, it in a very interesting, in, interesting way for sure. Um, but I pulled up a, one of the, the poems. I don't know if poem is the right word, but um, I think this is the first time. That's what I call them. Okay. Yeah. Some people will call them chapters. Some people will call them verses, but I usually just say poems. Okay. There, there's no accepted way. Okay. That's good. I'll just use poems because uh, that's, that's what my teacher used. So <laughs> I will I will revert back. But it says the way produces one, one produces two, two produces three, three produces all beings, all beings bear yin and, and bear yin and embrace yang with a mellowing energy for harmony. And that's um, poem forty two. The way produces one. I'm sure I'm sure you have a different different translation, but. I think it's um, definitely you can see some contrast there with um, Lazu saying all all beings bear yin and embrace yang um, with a mellowing mellowing energy for harmony. So it's obvious that you know you're going to be having to embrace and accept, uh, bear and embrace different things in your life to to live a good and fulfilling life. Well, and there's one of the key ideas behind Taoism is this idea of acceptance, accepting what mm-hmm. is. And in a way, that's very stoic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let, let me read uh, my translation. So so the one I use in class, we'll put it up on the website for everyone. Uh, it's a translation by, and pardon my my pronunciation, Gai Fu Feng, F-E-N-G, and Jane English. That's her last name. It has nothing to do with an English <laughs> translation. Uh, but it's the Feng F-E-N-G, Feng, English translation. To show you a difference in, in translations, the poem that Andrew just read, let me read my version of it. It says, the Tao begot one, one begot two, two begot three, and three begot the 10,000 things. The 10,000 things carry yin and embrace yang. They achieve harmony by combining these forces. Huh. So it's just interesting. You could you see why like I go down this uh, translation rabbit hole yeah. because... Sometimes a different translation will clarify an idea. Sometimes it will further muddy it. It's just an, anyway, just interesting. No, it's it's definitely the the contrast is is slight, but I think it's important in some things. I mean, if we were doing a, a longer series on this, we could talk about the ten thousand things and and such. But uh, the, the translation differences is striking to say to say the least. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we mentioned yin yang. And uh, so let's get into like some of the themes and motifs that are carried kind of throughout the book. Sure. The, the first one I want to talk about, which is probably the most difficult one to sort of wrap our minds around, is what exactly is the Tao? Now, I mentioned earlier when translation, Tao translates to the way, but even that doesn't quite describe what the Tao is. So, like we said, with all philosophies of living, there's always, at bare minimum, a metaphysics, which is something that explains our condition and what our world is. And then there's there's always an ethic to it as well, like how to live in that condition. So the metaphysics that's behind Taoism is very mysterious. It's a, it's a mysterious or a mystical, uh, which is a word Andrew mentioned earlier, is a mystical uh, approach to living. That's why it's planted in the yin side of the yin yang because the darkness is mystery right and so there's a great mystery to existence through the Tao Te Ching and the Tao is 
a force that underlies all reality. Now, if you want to call that force God, that's fine. Taoism won't care. They might call it that as well. But the Tao is something that is unapproachable. We can only glimpse aspects of the Tao because we are human. And part of our goal in life is to become as close to the Tao as possible, or rather emulate or embody the Tao as much as much as possible, owing that it can never be achieved at the same time. But we can make these improvements in our lives, trying to get as close to the Tao as possible. So there's a number of poems throughout the book that I call mystery poems uh, that just talk about the strangeness, if you will, or the mysteriousness of this force that underlies everything in existence. So that's like the order of the universe, how things operate, all the way down to uh, relationships between human beings, relationships between human beings and nature, uh, etc. So, I don't know you have anything to say about that, Andrew. Before I read a poem, I don't. I have a. I I brought up a poem too, and I'm curious if it's going to be the same one. Okay. So, but I think I'll, I'll mention this before. I think that there's kind of this acceptance of unknowing that's that's apparent in Taoism. That's just. I, I hate to keep comparing back to the Western tradition, but that's just so radically different from Western philosophy in the sense that in a lot of Western philosophy, you can know a lot of things. You can, well, maybe that you, you can't know a lot of things, but the goal is to be able to, to know and to, to learn how you can know and to understand knowledge. Self-knowledge is extremely important in Western philosophy, but Taoism kind of rejects that from the beginning, so that's why I'm interested if we're gonna uh, if we're thinking of the same poem. But I think that there's just this kind of acceptance of the unknown in a way that's just so radically different from from what we're used to as as Westerners and just our tradition that we both come from. Yeah. Before you read that poem, let me make a, a reference to Kierkegaard, an existentialist philosopher from the 19th century, and he coined the term leap of faith, which uh, is like the closest thing in the Western tradition to sort of accepting a mysterious approach to knowledge. You know, Kierkegaard says, sure, there's plenty of things that we can know rationally, but at some point, uh, reason has its limits. And in order to embrace something like God, which he found many contradictions with rationally, or I think you could say probably the same thing with the idea of believing in an underlying force like the Tao, that would be kind of a leap of faith because reason has its limits. So that's probably the best expression of it that I can think of off the top of my head in, in the Western tradition. Although you do have plenty of mystical philosophers in the Western tradition, they're just kind of minimized over rationalists. So what poem you got? I think this is poem number one. Um, oh, okay. I, I had to... That's the one I was going to use. Okay. <laughs> I, I figured it was going to be the same. Why don't, why don't you read it? Because I'm looking... I think I had it remembered, so I looked it up, but this is from Goodreads, so I, I trust your, your, your translation more, because I didn't like this. Well, it'll be interesting to see what yours is, because uh, a lot of people will say that poem one is the most important poem of the <laughs> entire book. Uh, another thing to point out about the, uh, the arrangement of motifs and topics in the book is that there is no arrangement. Uh, mm. Every poem is, I mean, you know, like, like if you're looking at the motif of leadership, 
that's going to be spread out through probably 15 poems or so throughout the book in various places. So there's no organization to it per se. It's not like these next five poems are going to be about <laughs> the motif of water. You know, It's all throughout the book. But poem one, some people will say, poem one is the only poem you really need. It explains the entire book. Yeah. That being said, I have always found it to be a very difficult poem to understand at the outset. I think if you read the whole book and then you go back and read poem one, you're like, aha, I get it. But so I've read many poem ones uh, translations to kind of get it. But this is the one I have in my book. Here we go. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of 10,000 things. Ever desireless, one can see the mystery. Ever desiring, one can only see the manifestations. These two spring from the same source, but differ in name. This appears as darkness, darkness within darkness, the gate to all mystery. So how's that, how's that stack up with your translation? That was the same exact one that I had from that, that I looked up. I can go back to the other one from the, the book that I had, but the first line stuck with me. So I, I remembered it, which is kind of rare because I have such a bad memory, but I'll read the other translation that I have just so we can compare. Mm -hmm. A way can be a guide, but not a fixed path. Names can be given, but not permanent labels. Non-being is called the beginning of heaven and earth. Being is called the mother of all things. Always passionless, thereby observe the subtle. Ever intent, thereby observe the apparent. These two come from the same source, but differ in name. Both are considered mysteries. The mystery of mysteries is the gateway of marvels. <laughs> I don't know why I got goosebumps when you read that. Uh, <laughs> I have read that people say that the, the first two lines you said they stuck with you. The first two lines are some of the most well-known lines in in philosophy. Really? I did not know that, yeah. but you know it makes sense. I think it's just such a such a striking statement that's both very complex and also very it's just an enigma that's just representative of the Tao Te Ching as a whole. It's it's a line that is both so complex but it's also so simple. It's just yeah. Yeah. I've had students say that before, like they, they get about halfway through the book and, you know, their heads have spun a number of times on certain concepts. And then I have heard students say in the past something similar to that, like, it's so simple, it's impossibly complex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is perfect for Taoism right. anyway, right. because it embraces these unity of opposites, right? How can something simple be complex? But but it is. So so let me let me talk about those first two lines. So the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. So remember, it's not talking about the way necessarily, although your translation says the way when it says the Tao. But the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The Tao is this underlying force of all reality. And you can't know it. It's beyond you. The, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. We've named the Tao Tao. <laughs> like the thing that we call the Tao is so beyond our little human conceptions that we've given it a name. And that's another motif throughout the book, mm -hmm. uh, naming things. We've given it a name, but that doesn't express the true essence of the Tao. 
because we can't know it. It's beyond us. So the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. Some serious mystery stuff there. (laughs) It's so mysterious. And like you were bringing up with the metaphysical concepts that underlie, even these first two lines are just interesting in the sense that it's the I guess the claim if if I'm just thinking about it would be something like there is this thing that underlines all of reality that underlines all of existence and it's impossible for us to know yeah if you want to use you know some some western uh, comparison here with Christianity and Judaism and Islam th- there is this issue of like what is God's name mm. and you know in Christianity God's name is God. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there are some, there are different names for God in the Judaic, in the Old Testament, the Judaic tradition, you know, Elohim, Yahweh, a number of different names that's used for him. But in the story of Moses, when he encounters God in the, in the burning bush, you know, Moses says, what should I call you? What is your name? God replies, I am, you know, and like, this is the closest thing I think we can get from a Western tradition of like trying to understand the concept of the Tao in, in that story with Moses. God uh, is like, uh, you, you, you can't really know me. I, I just, I am, uh, there's no name. And uh, right. Go ahead. No, that's just, that's just such a good example because I, I, I can't say much more than it's a great example, but I think it's, it's just really showing you. Yeah. I don't even know what I'm going to say, but it, that's a great example. Yeah, because like in, in the Western theistic tradition, we try to know God and we give God attributes, right, uh, of, of being a loving God and, a, and an all good God and an omni uh, all knowing God. And, 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 you know, we talk about how God loves us and how God knows every hair on our head and all of these types of things. Yet in the Christian tradition, as with any religious tradition, you also have a mystical branch and, and there are mystics in the Christian tradition that definitely fall much more towards Taoism. They're like, yeah, we can't know God. He's beyond us. <laughs> so so that's what the Tao is. And uh, it's a very complicated concept. Students finally get it about halfway through the book. Um, I mean, they kind of get it. I don't know. It, it's a hard concept. I'll just leave it at that. All right, so let's talk about the themes and motifs that kind of run throughout the book and all of its poems. Students will say, like, uh, all of these are just kind of saying the same thing over and over again. Um, But using so many different examples or motifs uh, helps us understand the concept. So some of the motifs that are more popular are well-known, and I'll talk about about some of these specifically. Water. Water is a motif. A lot of the Tao Te Ching language is very nature-oriented, and so a lot of the the motifs that are used are also nature oriented. So, so we have water, we have uncarved block. Boy, that's a complicated one too. Um, we have the idea of it, that empty space is useful. A valley, a valley is always lower than a mountain. And the idea in Taoism is to let go of your ego, which means you have to let go of your arrogance and become humble. And you can become humble by becoming lower than everyone else. And so that's why you have image images like valley or the ocean. The ocean is the lowest thing. It's below all land. Now you have a lot of imagery dealing with 
the woman or mother uh, or child. A child is innocent and doesn't have that ego yet. Uh, the woman is caring uh, and soft uh, in terms of her discipline. And, and then, you know, ego itself. Ego is just like in Stoicism, ego is the enemy uh, for, <laughs> for, for you living your best life. The more we can let go of our attachments, the more we can let go of wanting to be right all the time and using wisdom to know when it's important to be right and when it's not important to be right, even when you might be. Uh, all of these things are, are pretty common motifs. Out of these, Andrew, was there, was there one that kind of stuck with you back when we studied it a number of years ago? Probably water is the one that most stuck with me. I think there's a lot of imagery in the poems that's just motifs are used to explain topics, very difficult topics in the uh, Tao. And, and water's always stuck with me. But when you mentioned the uncarved block, that one was also something that I remember when we studied that really stuck with me and helped me think about the, the whole concept. I have, to, I have to bring up one more motif that was quite a, quite a popular one in class a few years ago. I'm, I'm sure it still is, but of the fish. Um, the motif <laughs> of the fish. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Go ahead. <laughs> so in poem 60... And in my translation, I'm glad it's it's translated pretty much the same way that I remember. It's a funny one, I think, on the surface, but it's governing a large nation is like cooking a little fish. Governing a large nation is like cooking a little fish. And I, we always thought that was funny in class because it's just so random, I think. But um, when I was reading this, the, the notes in this translation, I'm going to pull it up so I don't misquote. But apparently the fish symbolizes the hidden potential for higher development. So I think that's kind of interesting and makes sense. Um, I don't know why it, it, it symbolizes hidden potential for higher development. Or maybe the, my motif is, is completely wrong, Mr. Parsons, feel free. But I had to, I had to throw back to, um, to that motif. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember students wanted to go out back behind the school and make a campfire and get a, a cast iron skillet and a little anchovy or something. And <laughs> like, what is going on with this poem? <laughs> Ruling a country is like cooking a small fish. You know, I'll say something about this, too, with the, with the book. Uh, I always tell students that the, the Tao Te Ching is not lazy man's philosophy. Like no. Lao Tzu does not really tell you exactly what he's saying. Um, you, you know, whereas like an analytic philosophy, like there's a real emphasis on clarifying terms and, you know, making sure everyone understands what the language is saying and, and all of this stuff. Uh, Lao Tzu, you know, he, he gives you like, like a, a lot of the work of the Tao Te Ching is, is attempting to understand what it could possibly mean uh, and how it might be interpreted in different ways and be uh, employed in your life in different ways. So one of the things we talked about last year with this fish, which was kind of a new thing, uh, which was which was like, okay, let's talk about exactly what it is like to to try to cook a small fish. It seems like it would be rather difficult, and you'd have to be very precise because if you cook it too little, well, you're going to eat a raw fish and maybe get some infection possibly. If you overcook it, it's going to be dry and and gross. It won't taste good. But you know, if you've ever grilled like a you know, a, a steak or a hamburger or whatever, like if, if let's just talk about hamburgers, if you've got a thin patty, that thing's going to cook in a matter of, of minutes. Mm -hmm. 
you can make a really dry hamburger really easily <laughs> because there's not enough, not much space between when it's undercooked and when it suddenly becomes overcooked. You have to be very precise about it. Whereas like with a big thick, like three quarter pounder or something hamburger, you have a little more wiggle room because there's just more there. You got more time, if you will, between, and again, opposites between undercooked and overcooked. So that was the insight the students last year had. So taking it back to ruling a country, you have to be very precise with ruling a country. And there's probably in a lot of cases a fine line between what's good for the people and what's not good for the people. I need, think to of that? Send your, <laughs> I need to send your cooking advice to uh, Whataburger so they can cook my patty as well. <laughs> well, if you think about it, like there's no nuance in a Whataburger or a patty. <laughs> like it's going to be cooked through. That's, there's not, you know, they're not going to ask you like, would you like a cooked medium, medium rare? <laughs> you know, you're just getting a fully cooked patty and yeah. It can be I guess they wouldn't be good at governing uh, governing the country. No, we wouldn't want Waterburger to do that. <laughs> Although it might might have some interesting architecture. <laughs> oh, well, man. I, I okay. have to. Br- Let's talk about Wu Wei then, unless you had something else. <laughs> no, I was going to bring up Wu Wei. Okay. Um, I have to ask you. This was. I remember this was the probably the hardest concept that I had learned at the time when. When we read it, I just found it so confusing for some reason of the the Wu Wei. On our notes, it says non-action, but it's so much. It seems to me so much more complicated than that. Um, and I'm still kind of blanking on. Obviously, it's non-action, but it, there's a lot behind it, and I'm not quite remembering it. So, can you give me a little refresher? Yeah. So Wu Wei is is a huge. I mean, you, you might say the entirety of Taoism kind of functions on Wu Wei. So, yeah, it translates most times to non-action, like you said, but, but that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. This isn't a call to laziness or hedonism or something like that. So if you ever notice, like sometimes, not all times, but sometimes the harder you try at something, the worse you do, right? Mm. So in a way, Wu Wei is kind of asking you to just let go. Now, again, that doesn't mean be lazy. That doesn't mean don't do anything. When it says non-action, that that doesn't mean literally like you're just going to sit there and do nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a way of allowing what you already know how to do really well to arise on its own in the most natural way possible and and taking comfort and confidence in knowing that, that you can do that thing. We, we see this expressed, it's kind of goofy, students bring it up every year. I guess it's not goofy, but Star Wars, right? <laughs> uh, the idea of the Force. You know, if you recall in the, or the original movie, which was episode four, there's this scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi, who could definitely be a Laozu type character, <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi is trying to teach Luke Skywalker how to trust his senses. And, and Luke is like sparring with this little floating globe that's like stinging him or shooting little lasers at him. And he's supposed to be using his lightsaber to block these lasers. And he just, he, he just can't get it. He keeps, he keeps, uh, you know, getting hit by the, by the laser bolts and he's getting really frustrated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ben Kenobi comes over and like puts a blaster helmet on him that has a, a face shield that doesn't allow Luke to see. And he tells Luke, to let go. And he says the same thing to Luke when he's getting ready to shoot the proton torpedoes into the Death Star. Um, <laughs> he says, use the force, Luke. 
let go. <laughs> so I know it's kind of a corny illusion, but it helps because let's that sports is an easy thing to talk about with Wu Wei. So let's take someone who shoots free throws, like an NBA player. An NBA player has shot literally tens of thousands of free throws in their life from when they're a little child to where they are an NBA player. And shooting a free throw should be the easiest thing because, right, like there's no pressure. No one's trying to block you. You literally just get to sit there or stand there and unopposed try to make a basket. Now, some basketball players, despite the fact that they've spent countless hours practicing with this, Shaquille O'Neal was always a good example. They just have a really difficult time doing it. Well, why is that? <laughs> and a lot of sports psychologists will say, what you really need to do is let go. Get into, and this is kind of a term that's used today, get into the zone, right? And when you allow the thing that you know how to do that's already within you, when you allow that to come out instead of trying to like grip it and uh, you know, hold it and control it, um, the idea is to, to let go of that control and let what happen that, that should happen, happen. And you'll make the basket more times than not. Uh, Andrew, I know you used to play, maybe you still do, the violin. People make reference to this in terms of music as well. Whether it's a, a jazz musician or you're playing a, a, a particular part in a concerto or something, the more you allow yourself to let go, to stop focusing on the music, because you know the music, you've practiced the music, it's within you. But the, the more you let go, the more you're going to flow, and you're more you're going to be in the zone, and you're able to create something that's incredible. Versus, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. Do, do, is that is that an experience that you've had with anything? Yeah, it definitely definitely was. I remember when I was when I was auditioning for Rice a few years ago before I made the big switch over to philosophy. I remember that I was trying to get myself into what I used to call my my avatar state from from avatar um, where I would just not be, really be thinking and and kind of just be there um, and I so I, I definitely understand in in that way I think it's it's a feeling that musicians can have I think I was talking to who was I talking to about this only a few weeks ago I was talking to somebody who was I don't know like an they, they were an athlete at school and I think they were having a hard time focusing um, and, and their classes or something. So it's just like you should, uh, I'm a big meditation guy. So I told them, you know, meditation is kind of where you're, you're just letting go. And so I kind of described that feeling to him that I had when I used to play violin of um, where you're just kind of in the zone. He was like, yeah, you know, when I, when I have my best races, it's always when I am not thinking. I'm just in this kind of state where I'm just doing what my body does. So I think that's a, a great example. Yeah, that is great. And so, you know, whether you're talking about athletics or music or in like your own life, uh, say like taking a big test is coming up that you've studied a ton for, you know, there comes a point where like you can't learn anymore, like you know it. And, and so it's time to stop stressing about that and just let it go and do the test and let the test take care of itself. Right. Like, so that's a great example. Poem, poem two is, is kind of like its first inkling of Wu Wei uh, about in the third stanza. It says, 
Therefore, the wise go about doing nothing, teaching no talking. So like, wait a minute, like these are wise people, the wise men, right? Like, how is it that the wise go about doing nothing? Why is that good advice? Well, it's because the wise men, and it also says teaching no talking. Like, (laughs) you know, some people are full of advice. Lord knows I'm (laughs) guilty of that. (laughs) You know, uh, people are full of advice and they're always telling you, what to do and what to think. And, you know, there, there's podcast and there's self-help books and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. But at some point, virtue, if, if you try to live a virtuous life, at some point, you won't have to try to learn to live a virtuous life anymore because you will have achieved it and you are virtuous. You embody virtue. And so you don't need to teach it to yourself anymore. You become it. And that's the same way with like, Letting the, the basketball, throwing it into the net for a free throw, let that become an extension of yourself rather than you know, it being something separate from yourself that you have to control, right? So that's why there's, that there's teaching with no talking. The wise don't have to teach. They don't have to say anything to you. You observe the wise and you're like, oh, wow, like, like they live by example. So anyway, Wu Wei. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned meditation earlier, Andrew, and there's there's a couple other things. I mean, you know, I was talking to Andrew earlier and we're like, oh, this could be like a four or five <laughs> four or five episode arc or Definitely. something. Or we could do like mini episodes, you know, with, with on <laughs> motifs, you know, take one motif or something. This is very introductory, everyone. And there's so many other things that part of Taoism or, or Eastern philosophy, like, you know, Andrew mentioned meditation. Uh, tai Chi is very, and, and there's a couple other schools of, of martial arts that, uh, that are in line with a, a Taoist type of, type of approach. Okay, why not? Just real quick. Tai Chi uses a person's uh, energy against them. Tai Chi is not an aggressive form of martial arts. Tai Chi uses the energy of your opponent against them. Whereas like something like karate or taekwondo would fall on the, the bright side of the yin yang symbol and that approach of martial arts is to uh, is to be the aggressor right so again like another example of this this yin yang right so tai chi uses energy against their opponent uh, karate and taekwondo uses their energy to attack the opponent so anyway th- like i said there's just so you, th- you talk about things like that there's just so much more that just orbits around this idea of Tao Te Ching. There are a number of other uh, Taoist texts that are very important to people who practice uh, Taoism. So this is kind of considered the foundational text. There are uh, just like with Christianity, where you have uh, people like Augustine and Aquinas and many mm-hmm. other th- uh, theologians that come along and provide commentary and add to the canon and, and doctrine of Christianity. Very similar with Taoism. There are a number of other Taoist texts. So, but this is this is kind of the foundational one. So anyway, I think that's it for, for Taoism. How are you feeling, Andrew? Do you feel centered? I feel centered. I feel, yes, I feel centered and I, I wish I wish we could spend more time on it, but the quote <laughs> corner is calling and yeah. we, must, we must not resist. We can't resist the pull of the quote corner. So uh, let's be wu-wei about this and, uh, and just let us, let, let the quote corner uh, take care of us. Let, let's go over there. Here we go. All right, welcome to the Quote Corner. This is a stark contrast from 
our topic of today's episode, but let's talk about my two favorite topics, Socrates and death. So (laughs) this quote is at the end of Plato's Apology, and I think it's very striking. So here we go. The hour of departure has arrived, and we go our ways. I to die, you to live. Which is better? God only knows. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) So people might recall from our well, I don't know what episode. Did we do the apology? I don't think we did. I don't did. think we ever did the apology. It's come up. But the apology is is Socrates's trial um for his life basically. And so like this is the final line, am I correct, Andrew? It's the final line in the apology, yes. yes. Yeah. That's very dramatic. Uh and, yeah, and of course extremely. I love it. Extremely. <laughs> <laughs> I to die and you to live, which is better God only knows. Well, I don't know. You're the you're the Socrates expert. What do you what, what do you think about this quote? This quote is striking, I think, on a lot of levels. Just one, like you mentioned, it's so dramatic in the sense that he is facing his death. He's saying this in front of five hundred and one. It's a little more than that, and the the math doesn't add up, but it should be about five hundred and one people. A little bit more than half of those have just sentenced him to die. Not only have sentenced him to die, but said that he was one of the most unvirtuous men in Athens, which is totally a lie. But I, it's just so so striking, right? He's, it's just an accumulation of all of Socrates and his entire philosophy. You have the 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 very last line, which is better, God only knows his his yeah. um, his pushback against knowledge, self knowledge, um, the beginning of it. Um, the hour of departure has arrived, and we go our ways. I mean, that's what that's what Socrates is all about, right? Like, he's he, his entire life is a preparation for death. Um, his his emphasis on virtue, the saving of the soul, it's all for death. It's all to to live a good life for death. And then I to die and you to live. It's just the Socratic irony that embodies everything. <laughs> Every every line that Socrates speaks is ironic, and that just embodies it all. So, it's just such a beautiful quote. Yeah, it's a great way to end a trial, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I to die and you to live. Which is better? God only knows. It also, uh, the, I guess the the phrase that I focus on is is that very last sentence, which is better? God only knows. Well, it seems very philosophical. <laughs> it is Socrates, <laughs> but in a way that you know, there's a view that if you're a practitioner or, or study philosophy, that there is just a, a certain degree of of being comfortable with not always having the answer to everything. And uh, you know, here's Socrates at the end. You know, he he believes uh, now. Now, whether or not he was just like this was a jab at everyone who voted against him or not is another thing. But uh, you know, Socrates believes that that after death in a way we will go on and he has comfort in that but he's, i don't think he's entirely sure of that i think he's mostly sure of that and life is can be difficult and hard sometimes which is better dying and going on you know in existence after your after your bodily death or having to endure the slings and arrows of of living so anyway i'm not sure what i'm saying <laughs> i think that's a good quote i like it Okay, let's rate this sucker. 
I'll just I'll just save the trouble and give it a five. <laughs> no surprise there. No <laughs> surprise there. I'm gonna give it a five as well. Man, what a great way to what a what a note to go out on at your trial. Yeah. <laughs> I I was just I've read this apology so many times. So, like it, it's just ridiculous how many times I've had to read this dang dang <laughs> book. It's so it's so annoying too in, in a lot of ways because I don't know, it's just annoying in, in ways that other things that you read read aren't. But this last line is always so refreshing. It's like, you know, those five gum commercials where the you know they they show the Arctic when you bite into the gum, whatever. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. It's just a very refreshing and I'll yeah. let me let me just say this is I think a literary construction by Plato, but I want to mention it. You can take this out, but um, Socrates's early dialogues mostly end in what's called aporia, which is in uncertainty. They end where Socrates does not come to a decision with his interlocutor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think did we have we talked about the Euthyphro? Euthyphro is a really good, famous example. We they, did. They don't yeah, come we, to decision. No, we we end. have we've not done a an episode on Euthyphro. We've mentioned it. Um, okay, we we did one on Phaedo. Okay, okay. Phaedo's a little different, but Euthyphro, the ending, they're talking about piety, right? And so at the end of the dialogue, Socrates hasn't gotten any real wisdom out of Euthyphro, and Euthyphro's annoyed, so he leaves. <laughs> and that ending is in what we call aporia, it's indecision. Yeah, there, there's nothing that's been really gained from it, just that Euthyphro's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is this last line is pretty interesting too, because in some ways it's it's very apparatic. You know, Socrates is unsure of what's going to happen to him after death, but in some ways it's a really good just conclusion too. So it's great in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely, love it. All right, everybody, that's going to be about it for today. Really appreciate you tuning in, spending your valuable time with us. We would love it if you'd leave a positive review and hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when our new episodes come out and pass it on to your friends. Uh, Don't try, just embody it and let it flow to your friends so that they will uh, have a great time listening as well. That's right. We'd love to hear from you. Please be like water if you do. Um, If you'd like to tell us what you think of the show, have a question you'd like for us to discuss, or philosophy quotes you'd like us to rate, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. You can follow all the philosophy on Twitter and Instagram and our website, opendoorphilosophy.com, where you can find many things about the show, including our book list, and we will get the translations uh, that we prefer on the website for this episode. I was going to come up with a really corny corny one, but I'm just going to leave it out. Oh, do it. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the free use of his music we use in the intro and outro. I'm sure he did that in a state of wu-wei. Oh, yeah. Because uh, it's so great. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.